0: My prediction is that next year is not going to be a good one for the global economy. And I think that that is certainly not consensus. I think that consensus is extremely optimistic about the global economy and is putting all of the problems of the global economy under the COVID-19 umbrella, thinking that once the pandemic is over, everything is going to be sort of uh, boom time. And I'm afraid it's not going to be like that.
1: Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com and Nexo.io and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Tuesday, December 29th, and today I am joined by Daniel Lacalle. Daniel is an extremely well-known voice on macro and a huge array of economic issues, as well as the chief economist at Tresses SV. He has written extensively about central banks, current economic policy, and has been a guest on this show before. I'm extremely excited to welcome Daniel back. So let's quit yapping and get into this conversation. All right, Daniel, welcome back to The Breakdown. It's great to have you here again. Thank
0: you very much for having me again. It's always a pleasure.
1: So this should be a really fun episode. We get to look back across what was a crazy year. And so I guess just to get us started, what was the most important economic story of 2020?
0: Of course, one would be tempted to say COVID-19. Now, I think that the biggest economic story of 2020 was not COVID-19, but the decision of governments to shut down an entire economy by a governmental decree. I think that that was the biggest economic uh, decision. Uh, Pandemics have existed in in previous occasions numerous times. Uh, What we had never seen was uh, governments deciding to shut down an entire economy uh, because of it. And uh, I think that that has proven to be food for many studies in the future about the long-term implications of such a measure.
1: Yeah that was my kind of next question following up from from where you started which is what is your sense of where the conventional wisdom is now around the right or wrong-headedness of those types of policies or is it still just too early to tell because we're I mean even right now we're we're living through it again
0: Well I think that conventional wisdom is uh, is probably now closer to an idea or at least uh, an understanding that the false dilemma of health or the economy should not be considered. It's not health or the economy. It is health and the economy. I think that by now it is pretty evident uh, from all parts of consensus that the countries that have preserved the business fabric and maintained economic activity the most that they could at the same time as providing safe and uh, simple protocols for the pandemic to be contained, have been the most successful in 2020, both in uh, managing the healthcare crisis and the economic crisis. So I think that right now, at least where we are, is 99% of economists would agree with me that severe lockdowns have been extremely damaging for the economy and uh, relatively ineffective in terms of the healthcare crisis, whilst we have seen economies that have managed uh, the healthcare crisis with simple procedures and with strict protocols and maintained the business fabric and the economy open as much as possible have actually succeeded.
1: Do you think that there are any real clear winners or losers coming out of this in terms of jurisdictions and, and their policies?
0: No, I don't think. I think that, the again, uh, the rhetoric that uh, that China wins, the rest of the world loses is... Is very simplistic and wrong. No, uh, I think that everybody has suffered immensely from the crisis. Uh, even Asian countries that are going to see a small fall in GDP will see very, very significant impact on their uh, exports, on the job situation, on the on wages and on savings of citizens as well. So I think that no, I don't think that there are clear winners and losers. I think that there are clear losers. I think that there are some that have some economies that have clearly performed much, much, much worse. And if there is any lesson out of this crisis is that if we look at, for example, the, the, the governments and the countries that have more interventionist policies, those have actually performed much worse, both in terms of the pandemic and in terms of the economy.
1: Interesting stuff. Okay. So let's uh, flip this question a little bit and ask, what is the most important economic story that people didn't pay enough attention to? So maybe went under the radar a little bit more than it should have.
0: Uh, that's That's a great question. I think that in 2020, I have seen a surprising lack of interest about the huge acceleration in the technology displacement of uh, fossil fuels in the economy. I think that one of the big stories of 2020 is how what was initially perceived to be as a year in which the trends of mm, technology and the trends of uh, the big social and macroeconomic trends that had been uh, started in 2000, in in the early 2010s, technology, uh, the change in in the technological landscape for energy. Many perceived that that would sort of grind to a halt and it actually accelerated. And 2020 was a year in which, uh, unlike all previous crises, we saw a very, very aggressive acceleration in the diversification and uh, technology innovation in, in energy. So I think that that is going to be a big story.
1: How much do you think that that has to do with shifts in demand? And I, and I guess there's kind of a larger context for that question as well, which is, I think, one of the big questions that everyone has moving into next year, moving into you know, kind of a vaccine era, is what part of these shifts that we've experienced this year are permanent demand destruction versus something that's more temporary?
0: Oh, I think that there is a there is a factor of permanent demand destruction, certainly. The consumption patterns and also trade patterns have changed, probably for the long term, in many cases. And so I would say it's a combination of both. On one side, there is an important element of obviously the lockdowns and uh, and the impact on the economy of the of the government decisions to try to combat the COVID nineteen crisis certainly that generated some demand destruction. But th- I think that there is also uh, a significant part that comes from a change in the behavior of consumers. I think that a lot of us have uh, realized that uh, many of the habits that we had about uh, Traveling about uh, the way in which uh, trade was being implemented were based on you know on things that we were accustomed to, but uh, that we probably have changed for uh, for good. And I think that that is likely to be one of the big one of the big drivers. But in terms of energy, coming back to that, uh, it's not just about demand and supply; it's about capital expenditure. I think that what we have seen in two thousand and twenty is that. The acceleration in technology investments in energy has been something that many expected to to be actually the opposite. Many expected 2020 to be a year uh, in which the the energy landscape would go back to traditional energy sources instead of of renewables and and more technologically driven uh, aspects of the energy landscape.
1: Looking for the best way to stay on top of your investment game? Nexo.io has you covered in three easy steps with their high yield savings account for digital assets. Step one, create an account at Nexo.io. Step two, transfer assets to your secure Nexo wallet with no minimum or maximum limits on funds deposited. Step three, sit back, relax, and earn up to 12% compounding interest paid out daily on your crypto and fiat. Your passive income made simple. Get started at Nexo.io. this is kind of the inverse of that last question, I guess, but what is an economic story from the last year that people paid more attention to than they should have? Or another way to to look at this might be, what's a conventional wisdom that seems overstated now at this point in the discourse?
0: Oh, in my opinion, the
1: US elections, clearly. Mm, Interesting.
0: Yeah. I think that the US elections uh, and the economic impact of whatever may happen in terms of the the U.S. elections has been one of the biggest and most polarized debates in economics, in reality, is not so significant. If we think about it, we will see some changes, obviously, in economic policy from uh, Joe Biden being president-elect to uh, the Trump administration, but there will not be significant changes in trade. There will not be significant changes in fiscal policy and certainly not on monetary policy.
1: Do you think that's just because sort of the, the die is cast in terms of you know, structurally what the U.S. has to do to, to continue, or is it more about a long-term shift in the political cycle that has to do with the U.S. withdrawing from the world?
0: I think that the two things, the isolation of the United States uh, relative to the rest of the world is not something that started with the uh, presidency of Donald Trump been ongoing. You could actually say that before 9-11. Um, and uh, just, just just not because it was a catalyst, but because it was already ongoing, that the, that the United States was becoming a more inward-looking economy. But it, it absolutely accelerated during the Obama administration when the U.S. started to be energy independent or close to energy independent. I think that the US going from the biggest importer in the world to being uh, almost self-sufficient or at least self-sufficient in a North American perspective, certainly made a big change. So I think that both things are true, is that on one side, if you look at Joe Biden's uh, economic program, you have a massive Buy American program there pretty much not too dissimilar to the messages that that the Trump administration or even the Obama administration had in terms of of trade. You see that the first thing that Biden has said is that he's not going to withdraw the tariffs on China. Uh, The World Trade Organization uh, conflicts with the European Union and with China are ongoing. I think that all of those things are part of a different dynamic, which is that, The United States uh, has stopped being sort of like the leading economy in terms of uh, what the rest of the world has to do, is that it's focused on its own big market, and uh, not because it's a bad thing, it's simply that, that that we're seeing how economic trends are becoming more regional. It's not just in the United States, it's also in Latin America, it's also in Russia, which has been virtually forgotten in the in the debate uh, the european union works on its own so we see we see regional sort of big economic areas that are becoming on one side more open yes obviously bilateral agreements and multilateral agreements but at the same time more insulated
1: it's almost a return of regionalism to some extent. Certainly, certainly. I completely agree with that. I think the answer to this question is probably pretty obvious for, for anyone who's been listening to you for the last few minutes, but do you think that this year, the changes that we've seen represent a fundamental or paradigm shift or more of an acceleration of what was already happening?
0: I think it's an acceleration of what was already happening. The big trends, technology, the technology revolution, the demographic Big demographic changes that are happening in the large economic agents, the European Union becoming an aging society in which almost 20% of the European Union citizens are going to be over 60 years old pretty soon. The rise of the middle class and the rise in the demographic importance for consumption and for economic growth of Asia and the emerging economies... So technology, demographics and socially responsible, climate change driven, everything that has to do with sustainability in the capital expenditure and in the business fabric and the planning of companies, all those three trends have been accelerated in this pandemic.
1: What do you think about that? I mean, the other one that people often reference with this year is the role of central banks and monetary policy and new types of fiscal policy, uh, you know, with governments having a stronger hand in economies. Is that something that you see as one of those accelerating trends? And do you anticipate more of that in the year to come?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, it is. Yeah. I was talking about the others as sort of good trends. This is a bad trend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Technology, longevity, uh, the growth of the middle class and emerging markets, and uh, and sustainability, are good trends. Monetary policy insanity is not a good trend, and it's unfortunately accelerating, and it's accelerating without control. You already have messages coming from central banks saying that they will maintain extremely accommodative policies, even if inflation rises. You see central banks hostage to governments that are completely unwilling to make structural reforms and uh, reduce the debt burden in growth periods. Governments spend more and increase deficit spending or, or maintain deficit spending in growth periods. And in crisis, they uh, present themselves as a solution and, uh, and obviously demand even more spending. So it's very complicated. I don't envy the position of uh, central bank uh, officials that defend the independence of central banks because the independence of the entities is not just being questioned. It is that unfortunately right now, monetary policy is only focused on maintaining the sovereign debt bubble at any cost, which is extremely dangerous because it creates a perverse incentive for governments to uh, deny all the structural risks that they are undertaking and uh, and continue with the insanity of uh, of big fiscal deficits no matter what what happens it's not just a, a policy that is used in uh, crisis periods in order to help navigate uh, a difficult environment it is a policy that has become the norm and is and is completely insane
1: Yeah. So it's hard hard to shift off that, but I have a couple more questions that I want to ask you in our last few minutes. Um, What assets surprised you most over the past year?
0: Um, I think that, if anything, I was surprised uh, at the big rise in cryptocurrencies. Not because I don't think that cryptocurrencies are responding to to the insanity of monetary policy, which they are. And that uh, they would uh, likely go up alongside risky assets, is, uh, but I think that how quickly they, uh, cryptocurrencies like uh, Bitcoin, have reached all-time highs, has actually surprised me. Uh, I expected them to do well, but uh, more probably in line with the um, with the increase in Money supply growth, rather than than the massive increase in price that we have seen.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been fascinating to see just how quickly uh, a new narrative took hold. I mean, I guess it's you know part and parcel of the fact that the the narrative has been there for years, but it, it seemed to be coming to fruition. And you had all these different models and catalysts, but it's definitely been, I think, for even even folks in the space, have been uh, surprised to see just how how quickly, especially the institutional interest has increased in it.
0: I agree with that. I think that I, I was uh, reading from a blogger that uh, writes quite a bit of, on cryptocurrencies from a, quite a bullish standpoint. Uh, how surprised he was at the at the rapid rise in in value of so many of these of these cryptocurrencies. Again, it it comes back to what so many. I think that it comes back to the reality that so many emerging economies have seen is that in a year in which the dollar has been relatively weak, respected to the euro or the Japanese yen. What we have seen is that numerous uh, fiat currencies have uh, completely collapsed or suffered immensely. We've seen the real, the Argentine peso, the Turkish lira, uh, the ruble. So I can understand what is what is happening, but um, I mean it's interesting to see how, for example, gold has underperformed what would have been are logical very bullish trends particularly in the last couple of months and how uh, cryptocurrencies have soldiered on and i think that it's showing that the world is changing more rapidly than we even expected
1: yeah, that's a that is a good summary of this year. I think. All right, here's a fun one, I guess. As we, as we round out, what's one prediction that only you have? So something that that you tend to think of uh, is is likely to happen that maybe some of your peers and colleagues don't don't quite see.
0: I wouldn't see mm, only I, but uh, I would say that uh, my prediction is that next year is not going to be a good one for the global economy, and I think that that is certainly not consensus. I think that consensus is extremely optimistic about the global economy and is putting all of the problems of the global economy under the COVID-19 umbrella, thinking that once the pandemic is over, everything is going to be sort of uh, boom time. And I'm afraid it's not going to be like that. Obviously, there are a few other economists out there. Uh, talking about this. Uh, but I think that uh, it's certainly consensus that there's going to be a relief uh, bounce that may, in my opinion, be more than overestimated.
1: Well, Daniel, it is always awesome hearing your insights and ideas. I really appreciate you hanging out. I know all the listeners do as well. So uh, thanks again for, for spending some time with us and look forward to talking to you in the new year.
0: Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Have a fantastic Christmas and happy holidays, everyone, and a great 2021, because the good thing about 2021 will be that 2020 is over, certainly.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Have a good day.